Comments made on the Ceratoc Podcast Network are those of the individuals and do not represent Ceratoc Corporation, its staff, management, board of directors, or third-party resellers. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Real World Fitness. Hope everybody's doing well today. Hope everybody uh, is ready for the holidays. You're either listening to this just before Thanksgiving or hopefully just after. And um, got an awesome guest today. And I just want to remind everybody, like I mentioned in the last show, as of the end of November, I'm just going to take a little time off to enjoy the holidays and my family and kind of recharge and Real World Fitness will be back after the first of the year. And I uh, have an awesome guest today. He is one of the most prolific authors in the fitness industry. And we're going to talk about his new book and some other things. And uh, before we get to him, real quickly, we've got to pay the bills. So we need to get a plug in here for audiblepodcast.com slash Saratalk. You've heard it a million times from me. You already know what I'm going to say. So go to the site, sign up for that free trial, and download anything you want. There are some really amazing things there. Lots of great books, fiction, nonfiction, lots of really cool old radio programs. And I'm not even sure. Maybe today's guest has some books that are available through Audible. I'm not sure. We'll have to ask him. So that's audiblepodcast.com slash Saratalk. And now let's get to today's guest, the author of maybe a dozen awesome fitness books, uh, the co-author of the New Rules of Lifting series of books with Alan Cosgrove, former editor of Men's Fitness Magazine, and uh, just a really, really cool guy. My guest today, Lou Schuler. Hey, Bill. Hey, Lou. How's it going? Really, really good. Yeah, thanks. It's um, really happy to be on here. I listened to a couple of your other interviews with some uh, really incredibly interesting people. So it's a, so it's an honor to be included in your mix. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I've been on a run lately with some really, really cool guests. The doctor from Precision Nutrition and uh, the psychotherapist from Toronto. Montreal. Or excuse me, Montreal. Sorry about that, Georgia. And um, well, you definitely deserve to be in there. I mean, you've got some serious credentials after your name and you've written some of the best books, you know, that have been written about strength training at all. Well, thank you. That's really high praise. Um, I, I appreciate that. And I actually was like trying not to laugh out loud during your introduction when you talk about being prolific, because, uh, you know, that sort of cuts both ways, because when you write a lot, at least with me, in my mind, I'm distinguishing each book and I'm saying this is for this audience, this is for this audience, this solves this problem. Readers have told me that they're worried about this, that they're confused about this, so I wrote this book to address that. But when you put a lot of books out there, it's not immediately apparent to your audience uh, which one's for them. Just as an example, three years ago, Alan Cosgrove and I wrote The New Rules of Lifting for Life, and it was the fourth book in the series. And we thought this is going to finally address all these people who say, well, I, I love new rules of lifting or I love new rules of lifting for women, but I have this thing. I can't do this exercise or, or I'm, I'm you know, really heavy or I've got this disability or I've had this illness or I'm going through this transitional something or other and I can't do your workouts exactly as written. How do I modify them? So I thought... Let's write a book about how these people can get the most out of their training program by basically self-modifying the program, which is that you decide which is the, you know, we give you progressions of exercises for each movement pattern. You decide what's appropriate for you. 
And to this day, I'll get emails from people who say, you know, I just bought new rules of lifting and I got this question. So I'm 400 pounds or I've got this knee injury and I'm not sure what to do. Or I'm, you know, 65 years old and I'm just starting a training program and I bought new rules of lifting for women. And I'm really confused about the barbell back squat. And if I had any hair, it would be standing up at that point. You know, I, I, you know, it would be on fire, so to speak. And I, I'm just like, but we've got a book that we wrote for you. But of course, I can't say it like that. I guess what I've just admitted is that I'm really crappy at marketing. Um, I guess I'm pretty good at writing. At least I can type. But the uh, getting the message out about why I'm doing each one, I could probably be doing that better. Well, you can't cover everything. That's something I've learned since I did my website. It's like I have ideas and I want to do this and I want to do that, but I can't do all this stuff. I need someone to execute this and someone to help me with that. And you can't do it all yourself. Well, welcome to publishing, though. I mean, that's, um, <laughs> I always get a kick out of people who want to get into this. And it's like, you, you got to understand the reason that I succeeded at this was because at the time I was the only one who wanted to do it. And, and I don't mean literally the only one. I mean, in the circumstances I was in at the, you know, magazines where I worked, this was not something that anybody wanted to do. And certainly nobody started off their career saying, yeah, I want to, I, I want to write about fitness. Now we hear that a lot. But back then, it was just this area where people who had my kind of conventional journalism training, if they were going to do it for a while, they just wanted to do it as a stepping stone to someone else. And I'm the only one, not the only one, but I mean, I was the first person I knew who had my very conventional journalism training and also a lifelong interest in fitness, especially strength training who saw this as a stepping stone to doing more of this and doing it better and reaching bigger audiences and exploring it more deeply than most journalists had done in the past. Well, you started in the late 80s, I think, with Weeder, right? Uh, early 90s, yeah. I was, okay. I was a graduate student at uh, University of Southern California in their, what they call, uh, professional writing program, which was a misnomer. It was a creative writing program. <laughs> my, my biggest objection was I had actually been a professional writer before I got in there, and, and that was one of the most frustrating things was it's like my classmates would be turning in material, and I'd be saying, but you, you, you understand that this is not a professional manuscript because you don't justify margins, you know, it, it you know, and I, and I would explain to people and say that, you know, there's a, but that was just the default setting on my computer. Like, you got to change the default setting then because we're a professional writing program. <laughs> you're not writing professional manuscripts here. And it, it was, um, so I had that frustration in the, uh, I guess in my first semester, I just answered a blind ad in the Los Angeles times for an editor at a health and fitness magazine. I'd never heard of men's fitness at that time, but got in the door, got an interview, went great, got along with everybody. I didn't get the job I applied to, but they did uh, forward my resume and I ended up copy editing part-time at Muscle and Fitness for a few months. And then I got a full-time job at Men's Fitness in 1992 and I've been doing it ever since. Okay, so it sounds like you felt like you should be teaching that class because you already had the life experience as a professional writer and people weren't just grasping what it really was all about. <laughs> that is so funny because I sometimes, uh, I had no business teaching writing because of how little success I'd had at that point. But the typing part, I understood, you know, <laughs> what, a, what a manuscript should look like. I had that part down. 
the the problem was the everything else I was there to do. I mean, I, I was there to write, you know, write fiction and and screenplays. And the great thing about it was I realized I'm just not good at this. Mm-hmm. I could always get work as a journalist. I understood how that worked. I understood, you know, how to report a story. Basically, I I, I understood writing the writing I'd been trained to do and the writing I wanted to do uh, that I aspired to do just simply wasn't going to work out for me that I I just wasn't, it it wasn't that I was bad at it. I just wasn't good enough at it. Okay. Well, I think you made one error in what you were saying. You didn't feel you were qualified to teach because you weren't that good at it. What's the old saying? Those who do do those who can't teach. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? I had a few of those probably in journalism school and I don't think people who who can't do something are good at teaching it. I, you know, my my kids are all in high school now, and I, I think a, a bad teacher is somebody who doesn't understand the topic very well. It at least doesn't understand it well enough to explain it to other people. So I think that if you're bad at something, you're just bad at something. And if you're good at something, you can either do that thing or you can teach other people how to do that thing. And I think over the course of a lifetime, a lot of people end up doing both. You know, I think that's why. Probably a lot of people from my profession, as they as it gets harder and harder to be an older person in, in this profession, they gravitate toward teaching, and some of them are really good at it. Well, teaching in itself is a skill and a talent, and you know, it's like I'm not a very good sax player or a very good guitar player, but I could teach a beginner all the fundamentals and have them on the right path up to a point. You're, you're right, right. I mean, for example, I have never been a power lifter. But if I had somebody who was an absolute raw beginner, I could probably help that. I, I could probably do it. Well, that's, this is what I do in my books. But I mean, even hands-on without any experience coaching people hands-on, which is why I always write books with people who actually do that, like Alan Cosgrove, who's been training people for <laughs> over two decades. But if I, you know, I could probably show a beginner how to do these things, and I could probably help them get moderately strong. But if they actually, say, wanted to go into powerlifting, then they would need an actual powerlifting coach. So, yeah, I guess if you're, if you're saying, could I teach sixth graders how to write an essay? Well, maybe. <laughs> okay. maybe, maybe. Maybe I could do that. I think you're underestimating yourself. Yeah. I think you're underestimating yourself. Well, uh, you know, I, I, like, I like to say that, I'm, that, I'm, um, that my modesty is well-founded. Because we're talking, okay. <laughs> well, sure. Because we're we're talking here about. I, I think we're going to be talking about fitness writing or, or my career or, or specific books. But the path that got me here is a path that included me trying to do a whole lot of other things that simply did not work out. And my <laughs> when when people on the rare occasions when people ask me for advice. I always say that there's this, you know, it's two things. It's what you want to do and what the world wants you to do. And in my case, what I wanted to do was so magnificent and would have made me globally famous. And I would have been this storyteller and, you know, and and had riches and groupies and, you know, all the things that uh, people fan- you know, pe- pe- people think happens when you're a writer, uh, when you're a successful writer. But what the world wanted me to do was first nonfiction, much better at that than I was at, at the other things, and specifically writing about health, fitness, nutrition. There was a gap. I tried to fill the gap. What I think happened was is more people got interested in the topic. The gap just kept getting bigger and bigger, and more people could step in. 
and start working in this field. But there was a combination of sometimes I would, I would think about that and I would think, wow, I was in graduate school for creative writing. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a screenwriter, you know, right out of college, you know, before I even got my first journalism job. I tried stand-up comedy. I tried all these things that I wasn't good at. So am I a failure or am I a success for getting into something that the world actually wanted me to do and where I could actually feel useful? And at the same time, I'm actually writing for a living. So I guess you can look at uh, you know the glass either way, half full or half empty. But the point is that I set out to be a writer. I make a living writing, so I'm going to call that a win. That's definitely a win. And I think the fact that you have tried a variety of things and went, okay, not that, next, and were able to go, that's not going to work, instead of beating your head against a wall for years trying to do something that obviously wasn't going to work for you. Oh, but I, I think but that's I, a win in itself, too. Here. I did beat my head against that wall for many years. <laughs> and even uh, three years ago, I, or maybe it was two years ago, I don't know, I actually finally just said, okay, I can self-publish my fiction. Let me just throw it out there and see if anybody likes it. So I threw it out there, and a few friends and family members said really nice things about it, which I appreciate. And the um, rest of the world, yeah, you know, they were, <laughs> they were happy to go about their lives not realizing my contribution to world literature. <laughs> okay. Just real quickly, and this is just my own curiosity, when you were part of the Weeder group, did Joe still have a lot of hands-on involvement? Uh, Joe was Joe was the most surreal aspect of that operation. You know, he was he's one of those guys who was a visionary. He had this one idea, and you you may actually know the history better than I do. But you know, back in the 1940s, he wanted to be Bob Hoffman. You know, he wanted to replicate what Bob had done at York Barbell with Strength and Health magazine, and that's what Joe thought that you know his destiny was. And when Hoffman completely rejected him. Weeder went a different direction, and his genius was realizing that there was more interest in working out for aesthetics versus working out to become, you know, a successful competitive lifter. And Olympic to, lifter, right. Right, yeah. That's right, because there, powerlifting didn't even exist back then. No. And that was his great insight, was realizing that there was this whole other market out there, and basically just telling people what everyone already understood to be true, which is that having a, having a bigger, more muscular body was desirable to the average guy who picks up weights. And of course, then Weeder was faster to embrace powerlifting because these powerlifting exercises were also the best muscle building exercises. And again, Hoffman was you know slow to pick up on powerlifting. So Weeder, with his one idea, ended up basically replacing his mentor as the biggest voice, or at least the biggest editorial voice, in whatever we call it. I, I call it the hypertrophied American community, but, you know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was of course, bigger than, bigger than the U.S. But basically, everybody who wants to get big went from Hoffman was the guy they turned to, to Weider was the guy they turned to. And I think that Joe always... He always imagined himself, and, and you think about this, you got this one place in the universe, and it's this fantastic place, and you're rich, and you're famous, and I, I always think that he saw himself as even bigger than that, and did, did you, for example, did you read his autobiography that he wrote with his brother Ben called uh, Brothers in Iron? I don't believe it's, is it available on Kindle or digitized? Because I, I don't believe I've 
it's available to me, but I wouldn't mind reading it because Joe's story is amazing. Oh, I'm sorry. Brothers of Iron. Brothers of Iron. And, and that's the thing. Right. The title doesn't even make any sense. Brothers in Iron would make sense. Brothers in Arms, Brothers in Iron, that would make sense. Brothers of Iron, what does that mm-hmm. even mean? And that was the thing about Joe, was that he would come up with kind of these nonsensical twists on things, and then you would have to do it. And my favorite, uh, when I was at Men's Fitness, you know, we, we had like the making up stupid lists, and one of our lists, you know, we, we had like the craziest head, uh, cover lines on Muscle and Fitness Magazine. One of their cover lines was energy, sexy, hard. Now, now, what how, in what universe what does those that mean? Words go together. You know, <laughs> it's like what you yeah. know. Okay, so you got a noun and two adjectives, and there's no structure there. Just energy, sexy, hard, and that was a cover line. And I would marvel at that, and I would think that you know we're still even if we're selling muscle, we're still using words to sell muscle, and so you have to put the words in the right order. You know, they they there has to be some kind of logic to. <laughs> So that was okay. my experiences with Joe. They were so, they were just so weird. He was such, <laughs> he was, he was this great guy and I was getting, and the paychecks never bounced. And I always appreciated, they treated me well there. They brought me in. I had no idea what I was doing in, in their world. I had my editorial skills, but I, I had no knowledge of what they did, how to write about it, learned everything there. And yet, I couldn't get around this idea that this guy who started it all was this guy who at some fundamental level didn't even understand it, didn't even understand what he had done. He thought he had done something else other than create a way to sell this dream of having a more muscular body. You know, he he couldn't avoid overselling it to the point where it's like we used to say that the, like the biggest lie... You know, you've heard you've heard those jokes. What are the biggest lies? You know, checks in the mail, rah rah rah. So, our, you know, we yeah. had our own list of weeder lies, and I remembered it started with women are really attracted to bodybuilders because <laughs> the research showed it pretty clearly sure. wasn't true. Some women certainly were, but most women, and in fact, the editors of Shape sat right across the aisle from us in their in their cubicles, right across from our cubicles, and there wasn't a certain a, a person there. Who, who wasn't like mildly repulsed by, by these big old bodybuilders. So, you know, it's like, let's face it, the muscle, yeah, it's really a guy thing, you know, but they had to pretend that women are really, you know, to, like totally into this and, you know, that people admire bodybuilders beyond the fact that they have big muscles, that it's like they, they were, you know, these really, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then the other one was that all weightlifting is bodybuilding because, I mean, Joe would just tell these crazy stories that couldn't possibly be true. Like he was talking about being in the, or maybe it was his brother Ben was in the Soviet Union and talking to their great sports scientists. And they wanted to know, like, where does this great knowledge of um, strength and conditioning come from? And that somebody, like, opened a closet and showed him a pile of Weeder magazines and said, this is where we get everything. (laughs) You know, it's it's like like in, in modern politics where you hear people say stuff and you know there's one guy in particular who's out there now you know with these stories and people are now trying to fact check them and realize they can't be fact checked but you know you listen to this and you say if you come from outside this person's world and you hear this story you say that is obviously absurd it can't possibly be true and that was the thing about about these stories that joe would tell they couldn't possibly be true but he would say them anyway 
And I have And no he believed him. Who, who who he thought was taken in by this. Well, so I guess the long answer to my question was yes, he still was very much hands-on when you were there. Oh, I'm sorry, that was the question. Yes. And if I were doing the interview, <laughs> I would have gotten somebody back on point like 15 minutes ago. But thank you for letting me get all that out. No, I'm a big fan of Joe, of what he did and what he accomplished. And you know, I've heard some horror stories from people who were close to him. And we won't get into that. But man was a marketing genius. And he truly loved the whole bodybuilding thing. He did love it. And that was a thing that I find most admirable about him and still do long, long after my weeder days was that he really, he really built something. He made something, he took something against the resistance of the industry that existed at the time. He took it and he understood what people wanted and he delivered it to them. And this, despite the ridicule that he took, I mean, you know, going back through reading some of the, you know, the war. Yeah. That, that Bob Hoffman, the war was like between him and Hoffman, him. they were, you know, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, making anti-Semitic remarks about him and these things that I think all of, you know, today we would just consider to be intolerable. But back then that was just fair game. That was just, you know, how they, uh, Hoffman yeah. didn't like being beaten at his own game. Yeah. But you know, going back to what you were saying, have you tried a lot of different things? I don't know how much of the weeder history you know, but as a publisher, he tried. It's the classic throw a lot of stuff against the wall and something will stick. He published sure. the bodybuilding magazines. He published uh, gay publications. Yep. He published softcore porn magazines. Uh, you name it. Well, yeah, and he gets it. And, of course, this comes from Bernard McFadden. McFadden. Who- Right, who was who was like the 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 health guru of the of the early twentieth century? But McFadden also put out True Detective, and you know you know he basically invented tabloid journalism, put out these romance mm-hmm. magazines. So yeah, so so Weeder, I guess, tried all that, and then his whole empire collapsed over distribution, right, in the early nineteen sixties. I believe so. Yeah, that that he couldn't get his, he had all these magazines, and all of a sudden he couldn't get them distributed anymore. So that was that was that. Mm-hmm. So he lost this whole. You know, Jimmy Breslin used, right? I think Jimmy Breslin used to work for Weeder. You know, the great uh, New York City political columnist. I think so. I yeah. think you're right. Yeah. Okay. You know, we're, we're going off in the wrong direction because all I really wanted to know was was Joe hands-on and we're getting into a big uh, Weeder tribute here, which, <laughs> which let's talk about Lou. All right. Sure. Yeah. Well, it is weird being, okay. to talk about me because it, essentially I learned – Everything I, I didn't want to do from the examples I just gave, you know, I, I certainly didn't want to be, I, I never wanted to lie to people, you know, I never wanted to be in a business where I had to, I, I guess now we would say pedal bullshit, but back then the way I looked at it was I, I, I just don't want to f-ing lie to people. You know, I, it's, it, it wasn't in my, uh, it wasn't in my nature as a, as a kid. I, I tried to be a liar. I was never good at it. I, I'd always get caught. And then I, you know, eventually the, the repercussion of that was that if you get caught in a couple of lies, then people assume everything you say is a lie and you start getting blamed for all kinds of shit you didn't do. And, you know, you get accused of lying even when you're, so, so I got over that pretty early in life, you know, and as, and mm-hmm. as a journalist, I just never, ever wanted to be caught peddling bullshit. You know, if, one of the reasons that I actually be, had to develop personal expertise in strength and conditioning. You know, I went into it as a conventional journalist, which is I'm going to interview people and then I'm going to write what they say. 
And I realized that I was becoming a, a, a bullshit conduit. I couldn't tell the difference between good training techniques and, and good systems and, and ridiculous ones. So began to get the, you know, studied, got the training certifications. Now I'm, a, you know, have a CSCS. And that doesn't make me an expert that, you know, you have to stay on top of these things all the time. But it gave me a basis to kind of tell the difference between what was real and, and what wasn't. Okay, you just answered a question I was going to get to shortly, which was, since you've already said you've never trained people, why did you get a training certification? And you just told us, and it makes perfect sense. So you could sort through the crap. Right. It makes perfect sense. And the peril of that is that you begin to think of yourself as as much of an expert as the people you're interviewing. Um, That's what I called, uh, I used to call that the disease of weederitis which is that somebody who interviews <laughs> somebody who interviews bodybuilders for like 6 months to a year begins to imagine that they're a bodybuilding expert. And it's like, no, you're not you're not a bodybuilding expert until you've either competed in bodybuilding or you've trained bodybuilders. And and even back then, people would say that talking about the expertise of of people who are good at bodybuilding, you know, it's like, well, you know, if you if you want to know how to train a racehorse, you don't interview the horse. Which of course is is incredibly condescending to some of these guys who are really 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 smart. But I think it does go to show that there's there is coaching involved, and the people who would know the most would probably be the coaches. And for one thing, the coaches would probably be frustrated competitors themselves. So they probably have a lot of a lot of experience through trial and error and their own frustration, figuring out what works best and you know why different things work for different people. Those are the people I wanted to interview. That would be me. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's all. That would be me. I Well, no, just, I'm exactly what you described. I competed in a few shows. I was like, okay, if they gave last place trophies, I'd have a whole collection of them. But right. I enjoyed it. I loved to train. And I went, I can teach this stuff to people. And I trained a lot of competitors that did well on a local and regional level. Great. Oh, good for you. Because I was, I was reading your bio. And you and I actually had some re- a couple of really strange things in common that we both started, I think, around uh, 13, 14, 12 mm-hmm. with a set of weights from yep. Sears, right? Yep. The and cement, plastic-covered cement weights. Yeah. Well, I think my first were actually plastic-covered iron weights. And then our second set, my brother and I, uh, the second set we bought was the, um, uh, the cement weights because I remember after we dropped them a few times, they turned to sand. So, and then they cracked mm-hmm. and that began to leak out all over. Yep. And then you said that your first gym was a Vic Tanny. And that was my first gym back in 1980 was a, was a Vic Tanny. You know, something funny about that. The, the fellow that signed me up at that Vic Tanny in 1975, I still see on a regular basis. He's 86 years old. He's in phenomenal shape. Wow. And, um, Yeah. I refer to him as Throwing Bull because he's of Indian descent and he is the king of storytellers. Throwing Bull, I like that. Yeah, because he has, you name it, he has done it. He has competed in Olympic Games. He has run marathons. He was the first one to do this, that, and the other thing. But Frank's an awesome salesman. If you're listening, Frank, I love you, and I still contend you hit on my mom the day you signed me up at Vic Tanny's. Was she cute? My mom? Yeah. She won a bunch of beauty contests when she was young. Holy sh**. Well, can you blame him? No, no, I can't. I just always thought it was funny. Oh, unless she was married. And then, and then, and then that's just sleazy. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay, so let's get on to the books. How did the marriage with Alwyn Cosgrove come about? Wow. 
I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Well, I remember meeting Alan. It was, I think, like January 1999, and I went to a seminar at the gym he was working at in Manhattan. I met him through Mike Mejia, who was doing a lot of work for me then, and he would always talk about how smart this guy, Alan Cosgrove, was, that uh, this guy, he, this other trainer that worked there. And they were hosting a seminar with um, Charles Poliquin and Dr. Eric Serrano. And I was really... Didn't get much I, better I, than that. I know. And I didn't even know Eric at the time, uh, but, but I read a lot of Poliquin stuff and, and really was excited about that. So went up there to Manhattan. That's where I met Alan. I remember, and, I, and I, he also had his girlfriend, Rachel, was there. And I don't remember if I met her, but I remember that was the first time I saw her with Alan. I began to quote Alan in story in the magazine, in Men's Health magazine. I began to uh, work with him. He was just, you know, no matter what we called him with, no matter what questions we called up, uh, we, we asked him. He always had something interesting that we hadn't seen before. So we began to work together, and Alan had never done a book. So when I came up with this idea for a book, uh, it was originally called Basic Training, and they, uh, uh, my coworker said, no, you can't call it that because it sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a military program. Sounds Nobody like a beginner's that. book. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, but, well, we had this idea that it would be for, for beginners and re-beginners. And then they talked me out of the idea of beginners saying that, you know, nobody's really a beginner. Everybody thinks that they've lifted before, you know, basically everybody's picked up something heavy, thinks they know what they're doing. So you can't appeal to them like that. So I came up with the title, The New Rules of Lifting recruited Alan, told him my basic idea. He was on board with it. And we changed publishers, didn't do it with the company I was working for at the time, Rodale, ended up doing it with Penguin. And uh, that's how we got started. We just had worked together on a bunch of articles and thought, I'll bet this book idea would work. Oh, and it obviously has, because I believe there are, are there five of the New Rules books? There are five with the title uh, New Rules of Lifting. Uh, started with the original New Rules of Lifting, which was perceived as a book for men, and that's only because uh, I was still working at Men's Health at the time that we started the book. But it ended up being a great my, – my best marketing decisions were accidental, and that was accidental. That We just had pictures of a guy doing all the workouts, and we had started out with the idea that men – this would be a book targeted to men. Women asked, where's the book for us? So we wrote the book for them, which ended up being by far the most popular and influential in the series – wrote three others, Abs, Life, and Supercharged, and then took off for a couple of years and realized that there was still sort of unfinished business when it comes to new rules of lifting for women and decided that, yeah, you know, it's really time to do a follow-up. Alan's most recent programs are very different from the program that was in the book. That you, you know, New Rules of Lifting for Women came out in 2008 so, which means we wrote it in 2006 and 2007. Well, Alan had, you know, in, in the almost 10 years since then, has just, you know, completely overhauled his training methodologies. So when people were coming to us and when that book was still selling, we thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with those workouts, great workouts, people have had great success with them, but it's not what Alan does now. What if we put out another book targeted to women that shows what he's actually doing now, which would be of more use to, to a, a wider range of, of readers. So that's our new book, Strong, which uh, came out a week ago. 
and I purchased it last Tuesday, and I started reading it, and I went, okay, this is good. The only other of the books that I've read and that I have is the Ab book, and anybody out there, we all know there's a million Ab books, and their approach in the Ab book is very different than most of the other stuff out there. It's an ab book, but it's a full body training book, and I would recommend the new rules of lifting for abdominals very, very strongly. Oh, thank you. No problem. It's a great book. So I was I was going to hit you with, so I've already bought new rules of lifting for women. What do I need strong or strength for? What's, what's the difference in this book? How is it different than the first one? The first difference is the emphasis of the, of the training methodology with new rules for women we show a couple of warm-up exercises, and then we have women basically from the first workout doing barbell back squats, you know, doing barbell deadlifts. Uh, we have them doing, you know, barbell uh, chest and shoulder presses, barbell, you know, barbell rows. And our idea when we wrote that book, oh, I, sh- I, sh- I should say my idea because that I have this very specific vision of these really fit women at the gym I was working out in at the time. And I would watch them, and there's one story that I that I tell in the book where I saw this woman, and she's doing tricep kickbacks with like a six-pound dumbbell. And then she puts down the six-pound dumbbell and picks up like a seven-pound dumbbell and starts doing one-arm rows. And so you think about that. <laughs> and this was a, a lean, fit, healthy-looking woman. And she was exactly the target reader I had in mind. All these women who are already in the gym working out, and they're doing these things that are, if you understand... Useless. Yes. If you understand strength and conditioning, you know that whatever goals they may have, and I think we can infer that if they're picking up weights and lifting weights, that they have a body composition goal, right? That they want to look better, that they want to look leaner and and sharper and probably wider shoulders and have some definition in their arms and legs and, you know, flat midsection you know, an athletic posture, all these things that we can infer that people want if they're in the weight room working out, all related to body composition, and they're going about it wrong. So let's do let's do a book that says what you're trying to do is not going to work because it's based on these fallacies about how the body works. So let's get into the real thing. Let's talk about the importance of strength, the importance of, of muscle mass, even though that's like mass is like the worst word you ever want to use with a female audience. We convince them, lift things that are heavier put more of your energy into strength training, less into these other things, and you'll see a big difference. And over thousands and thousands of women over the years have done what we asked them to do. Suggested. Suggested. And, yeah, because I, I almost said told them to do, and I thought, no, 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 that was Weeder. You know, <laughs> I can remember the editor of Muscle and Fitness one time telling me, he said, you know, I don't want readers. I want disciples. That may not have been the word he used, but basically he says, I don't, I don't want, basically he was saying, I don't want somebody to read the magazine. I want somebody to, in essence, in, follow, in, follow, right. I, I want people to just followers, followers. We want followers. And I thought, I do not want followers. <laughs> I, I want people who have given this some thought. I want people who have tried a couple things and not had success doing those things. Because then I figured they're going to be receptive to this message. And, of course, we ended up with this huge audience that was way different from what we originally envisioned. You know, you get an email from somebody, like I I mentioned this earlier in the interview about, uh, uh, I think it was yesterday morning when we started talking. Um, (laughs) So I, I, um, (laughs) we get these emails, you know, from like the 65-year-old woman who has never 
worked out before. And it's like, you know, she's asking me questions about the barbell back squat. And I'm thinking, no, that's the biggest difference with what we do now is we have progressions leading up to all these exercises. And we tell people it's okay. You may never get to a barbell back squat. Totally fine. As long as you're doing the squat movement pattern, that's what matters. You know, deadlift, pulling a barbell off the floor is great. You may not get there. You may get, you know, you, you may do great with rack pulls. Never get to that. There's all these other hip hinge movements that we're going to have you do because the key is for you to do that movement pattern, not to do any specific exercise. So there's that nuance. Okay. To, there's that nuance of the program, and then there's also a, a much bigger emphasis on mobility, on core training, and really on total body fitness than what we had in the original. Okay, because I I was starting in my mind to get new rules for life and the new book mixed up because I know you were talking about the progressions and so forth for that. So right. in this new book, you're also getting into a lot more of the progressions of maybe doing something like a goblet squat as opposed to a barbell squat and sure. just the different, okay, like you said, the different hip, okay, so it's a lot right. more into progressions and a lot right. more scalable. Right, and, and we're also starting with the assumption that, again, this is going to be, that we're essentially writing for a basically healthy audience. They could be any age, and they could actually be male or female because the workouts are great. They work just as well for guys as they do for women, but we're targeting it to women. And I still, if anybody comes to me with, if they have special circumstances that would prevent them from doing a full body, intense strength training routine, then I still like to send them to life, uh, new rules of lifting for life, because that's the one that addresses all these concerns. All right. Does the new book get into nutrition at all, or is it strictly about training? Strictly about training. There are chapters on nutrition. Uh, There's one chapter specifically about protein, because let's face it, when you're Trying to change your body composition, trying to change your body weight, I think the two most important elements, number one is total energy intake, and maybe that's number one through ten. And then there's protein, which is going, if your goal is to eat a little bit less than you're eating now, protein is really your best friend. That's the one macronutrient that's going to do the most to both increase your metabolism in terms of increasing lean mass and also the thermic effect of feeding, and it's going to help limit your appetite. You're, you're going to feel full, longer, more time between meals, possibly eating less at the next meal, some studies have shown. So if we can cover those two aspects, I think we're fine. I don't think we have to give a full meal plan the way we did in the, in, in the original book. Okay. So this book is more about getting deeper into the training, more into the progressions, more into right. how to regress or progress if you can't do whatever exercise. You can take it to this, you can take it to that, either step forward or step back. It's just the 2015 version of the first book with a lot more detail, it sounds like. Yeah, with the first book, like I said, we targeted it to healthy, relatively young women who were not, who you know, who had specific goals and were not using training methods that would help them reach those goals or, or reach them efficiently. And we ended up reaching this much bigger audience than we ever anticipated. And one thing Alan Cosgrove has said to me, uh, we, we've joked about this a few times, it's like, if we understood what we did with that book, you know, how, how we ended up with a much bigger audience than we ever even wanted, were trying to reach, we would do it every time. But of course, we, we haven't done it every time. So with this book, we have no illusions that we're going to change people's lives, you know, re- reach the, the kind of, we can reach the same kind of audience, 
but we don't imagine that we're going to have the same kind of impact. That, that, you know, this isn't now a radical idea of, hey, how about if you lift heavier stuff? That is already out there. Our audience has already accepted that. So now what we want to do is we want to help them get better results. If nothing else, have better workouts to do, workouts that follow up from what they were doing previously. There's about nine months worth of programs here. I think with most people, it'll probably take more closer to a year to get through the program. It's repeatable. So it could be as much as two years of training. Again, we don't see this as, as changing lives the way New Rules of Lifting for Women did. We basically want to make your workouts better. You didn't set out to change the world with the first book. It just happened. So I think anyone that sets out to change the world with something is going to be disappointed. You know, you're just trying to make things better. And if it turns out huge again, then it's just a bonus. Yeah, well, it, it, it would be. And it would, you know, it, I guess it would be great to understand, you know, to fully understand what we did with that book. But I think that what we did was it was a combination of having the right message at the right time. At the right time. For the right audience. There you go. And it was an audience that, that I have to say was completely underserved by their media at the time. I, I think if you went back through and looked at what I was looking at when I was writing this book, at the books that were targeted to women, at the magazines that were targeted to women, it was all this. Toning, shaping, lift little weights. Right. Yeah. 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 But avoid strain because you'll break because you're a woman and you're fragile. And we came back with a different message saying, you know, you're not, you're not really fragile. You're, you're a different size and shape from guys, but your muscles work the exact same way. Your body is designed to do the exact same movements. So let's focus on that because the goals, any goal that you want in your fitness program is going to be more easily accomplished if you're stronger. So let's get stronger. Not to mention life is better if you're stronger. You can carry your baby. You can carry groceries. You can just physically do more. Sure. Being strong is a good thing. Right. And I think, uh, you know, stronger people, if you look at somebody who looks strong, chances are they actually are strong because it's, even if it's all just genetics and they haven't started training yet, chances are the, the potential is, is there and you can just see it by looking at their structure, you know, the size of the shoulders and the, you know, the, the hips and everything else, you know, and certainly the way they carry themselves. So if people want the look of somebody who's strong, then the first thing to do is let's get strong. You can't get that look without, <laughs> there you go, without the function to support that look. Yeah. Okay. So the new book is out. It's available on Kindle. It's available as hard copy through Amazon, directly through your website as well. Right. I will put the uh, the links to your website. And um, okay, in addition to writing, I know you do some presenting. When you do a perform better or one of these other summits, I'm assuming you're talking about writing. Uh, no, and and I don't actually do. Alan does perform better and has for a few years. And by the way, audience out there, if you ever get a chance to hear Alan Cosgrove do a presentation at Perform Better or, or or anywhere else, you should definitely do it because he is fantastic. He is a great public speaker, funny, and you know says things that they sound like. As soon as you hear him, you think, oh yeah. That makes so much sense, but it's like, okay, well, how come somebody else didn't say it first? So, Alan, if you ever get a chance to, to hear him present, I'm not as good as Alan. Uh, <laughs> but when I, when I do present, I usually talk about what I try to do is ask the audience to think about a subject they think they know a lot about, think about it a little bit differently. So I talk a lot about obesity. I talk a lot about uh, the challenges of weight loss. I talk about the genetics because there's still a lot of people in our industry who want to believe that they're lean and strong only 
because of their personal virtues and that it has nothing to do with their genetics. It has nothing to do with what they were born with. And the analogy that I make, if it's okay to, can I go off on this tangent? It's a relatively short Of course, of course. The analogy I make is, so imagine that your obnoxious cousin wins the lottery and within few months or a couple of years, he's, he's offering you financial advice. And, you know, and then one day you hear him talking about, you know, well, I think anybody can be rich if they just want it enough, you know, and people who are poor, man, they just, they want to be poor. They haven't done what it takes. And, you know, at that point you sort of snap and you say, dude, you're, you're not Warren Buffett. You won the lottery. You know, that's it. You won the lottery. That's why you're rich. And the guy's like, no, are you kidding? I earned this. And I think that that's the way a lot of people in the in the fitness industry are. It's like, okay, so I was already lean and athletic and strong and probably pretty good at sports. Maybe, you know, females, I was already the hot chick, guys, you know, I was already, you know, the captain of the football team, mm-hmm. I was already the quarterback, I was already the, you know, the, the star shortstop, even before I started strength training. And yet they convinced themselves that this was all what they brought on themselves through their own hard work. And, and it, it doesn't mean they didn't do the hard work. It just means that they already had this huge genetic advantage before they even started. And I'm not saying that's everybody in the industry, but I think that there are people in the industry who fall into that trap of imagining that their great good fortune of being born with a certain size and shape and, and certain abilities means that people who weren't born with those abilities are somehow less than them. So that's a big thing that I talk about a lot is is trying to get people to see this differently. And I do talk about writing also. Well, that's a really important topic because a lot of the gurus out there will t- say you can overcome your genetic issues. And there are certain things that you just can't. I've read in some of your stuff where you've said, you know, you're much stronger than you ever were but you're never the strongest guy. And you could train your butt off for the next 30 years and do everything perfect, and you just don't have that genetics to do a 500-pound bench or a 700-pound squat. It's not the way God made you. Sure, and I've hurt my shoulder trying to do, uh, I think my PR in the bench press was 260, and I tried to get up to 265, and this was in my mid-40s, and really messed myself up. You know, Same with the squat. Got up to, uh, I think my all-time best was 305, tried to beat that, felt my kneecap move, and uh, knees have never been the same since. <laughs> you know, with um, deadlifts, I didn't hurt myself getting a PR, but the PR was like double my body weight. It was 360. Yeah, I think I was 180 at the time. So it's not a, that's not a big weight by, you know, the standards of our industry, but it felt like my body was coming apart when I did it. And once I did that, I said, I'm never getting close mm-hmm. to that weight again because it just felt like I, w- I thought this was too big a risk. I shouldn't have even done this, but... I'm sure not going to try to beat that. Yeah. And you have to have that bit of common sense because I still see guys in the gym trying to lift ridiculous weights. But the, the point really is Arnold was born to be Arnold. Sure. The greatest quarterback out there, whoever you may say it is, Brady or whoever, he has those God-given gifts. And, okay, he's just maybe refined them. So if someone says anyone can build 20-inch arms, anyone can run a four-minute mile, it's a lie. Sure, absolutely. And there are are a lot of gurus out there. You know, I didn't – I'm not going to go into who it was, but I did an interview with somebody recently that said – there is not a man alive that should not be able to do a 400 pound deadlift. And I, it was so hard to not go bullshit. Well, I'm one of them right in the middle of the interview. Yeah. Yeah. I am too. 
I am too. My best ever was a triple with 385, but for whatever reason, I could never pull four. And that was when I was training hard and I was... Triple body weight nope. impressive. Yeah. No, I, I did three reps with 385, but I could never pull 400. And I think it was just a mental thing. You know, and that was at 25 taking anabolics like everybody did in the 80s. And, you know, and it just, <laughs> it's not there. Some people have the genetics, some people don't. Yeah. All right, I'm going to wrap this up because we've talked about the book. We've talked about your background. We've gone off on some tangents about Joe and some other things. And I'd just like a final parting thought from you. And we'll, we'll put everything about the book and your contact information, your website, and everything in the show notes because I want everyone to go out and buy the book. We'll stay home and buy the book. You don't even have to go out and buy the book anymore. Sit at your computer and buy the book. And uh, final parting thoughts, please, Lou. Well, again, I really appreciate getting the chance to talk, and uh, it's always fun to connect with a, you know, with a fellow meathead. Uh, you were much more successful in the in the meathead industry than than I was, but I think that the reason that I remain fascinated by all this, by all aspects of, you know, health, fitness, nutrition, and uh, as well as training, is that I was never so good at this stuff that I thought I understood it. I always felt that there was something else out there that I could learn, that I could try. And I feel that, you know, when I when I write the books, when I write the articles, I assume that there's readers out there who feel the same way, that they're looking for something new, something different, something potentially better. And if not better, then sometimes different itself is better. So that's what keeps me going is the fact that I was never good at this stuff. And that's the audience that uh, that I try to address. You know, if you're the strongest guy in the room, you do not need my books. If you're the magnificent guy, you know, who can effortlessly stay um, in the single digits of, of body fat, if you walk into the room and people automatically, their eyes go over to you, you're probably not going to enjoy my books or get much out of them because you're already really good at this. I want to talk to everybody else. I want to talk to the other 99.9%. And it's incredibly gratifying to know that some of them have actually uh, paid attention and gotten a lot out of these programs. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for spending this time with me and everybody out there. You've been listening to this week's episode of Real World Fitness with author extraordinaire and not that great of a fitness guy like myself who's had to work <laughs> twice as hard to get wherever we got. So I definitely can relate to him on that one, Lou Schuler, and uh, buy his books. They're really good. They're easy reads, and there's a lot of good information in there. Um, hope everybody enjoyed the interview. Hope everybody had, and we'll continue to have some awesome holidays. And uh, we'll be back real soon. Have a great day. Real World Fitness is a production of the Talk Podcast Network in cooperation with CoceabaFitness.com. All questions, comments, and feedback should be submitted to resources at Serotalk.com. If you're listening on a mobile device, use your iBlink radio app to submit an iReport. Promotional consideration paid for by Audible.com. <laughs>